Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am both the host of this podcast as well as the director of the nonprofit creatingafamily.org. Today is the second part of an LGBTQ plus parenting series, and today we're going to be talking about adoption. We'll be talking with Abby Goldberg. She is a professor of psychology and current director of women's and gender studies at Clark University. Her research and writing focuses on diverse families, including LGBTQ families, parents, adoptive parents, and she has authored and edited eight, listen to that guys, eight books and over 130 peer-reviewed articles. Let me tell you, she is prolific. Welcome, Abby, to Creating a Family. We are so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me again. I was on this in 2009. You know, I was trying, I think, I think when we were corresponding, it was, it was 2009. You're exactly right. Time, it does fly. So let's start with something that, you know, there has been significant changes in the area of LGBTQ plus adoption. It has been, it's been fascinating. We've been doing this show for 14 years and it has been really interesting to me to see the, the shift. And I'm so happy for the shift. So let me begin by saying, let asking you about the legality of LGBTQ plus parenting parents adopting in the United States. Can you just give us a brief overview? Yeah. Um, So, of course, as you mentioned, things have changed a lot, particularly in the last five to seven years. And all states now allow LGBTQ folks to adopt. So Mississippi, as you might remember, was the last state to overturn their ban on gay adoption. And 2016, a federal judge deemed it unconstitutional. And of course, before that, we remember the Florida bans on, on adoption. And anyway, so the, the point being is that we're in a very different environment now than we were then. But of course, there are still many, many issues related to, to discrimination in the adoption world. So for example, you know, we see that, you know, on just under half of LGBTQ folks live in states that actually have no explicit protections against, against discrimination and adoption based on sexual orientation and or gender identity. So that means that agencies, for example, and professionals can interfere with folks uh, who who want to adopt. Mm -hmm. So there's no sort of prohibitions on on discrimination. And there's, of course, a number of states that have introduced legislation that would allow kind of these religious exemptions so people can discriminate based on religious convictions, Mm -hmm. for example. And agencies are be allowed. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Let me refer people to the creatingafamily.org website. We've got resources where we link to other resources as well as include information on the legality and others. And it would be creatingafamily.org, hover over the word adoption, click on, you'll have a drop down menu, click on adoption topics and go to LGBTQ adoption. Can you, do you, this may be something you don't know, and so I can read some of the stats off, but I'm always, I think that people don't understand the importance of the LGBTQ plus community in the world of adoption. Do you, can you, uh, do you have at your fingertips some stats that are relevant to how common it is in that community and what they do? Yeah, I do. Um, Only because I have to sort of, you know, call up these kinds of statistics in various contexts. So yeah, I figured you did. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, and I work closely with the Williams Institute, which is often responsible for kind of providing these kinds of very useful updated statistics. So we have about 114,000 same-sex couples who are raising kids right now, including 28,000 male same-sex couples and 86 thousand female same-sex couples. Um, We know that same-sex couples who are raising kids are somewhere between seven to 10 times more likely to be raising an adopted child compared to their heterosexual different sex counterparts. So seven to 10 times more likely if they have a child, seven to 10 times more likely that that kid is adopted. We also know that they're just generally more interested in adoption as a family building route compared to heterosexual folks and view it maybe as a more ideal family building route compared to heterosexual folks. So those are just a couple of them, a couple of the statistics. But And they're also more likely to adopt through uh, from foster care, yes. which I think it's also something that a lot of times people don't recognize and realize that they are in many ways providing a huge uh, untapped resource for finding foster families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my research, some of which I did in, in kind of consultation with the human rights campaign, we found that basically trans folks actually were the most open to the so-called kind of hard to place children. So, you know, sibling groups, older children, children of color, children with physical or mental health challenges, mm-hmm. followed by female sexual minorities, followed by male sexual minorities and all of that more so than, than cisgender heterosexual folks. So they are an untapped resource. Absolutely. Um, I'm interested in that. Do you, did your research go any deeper to find out why you think that trans folks are, I mean, I can speculate, but I'm not sure my speculation is accurate, uh, why they would be open to the kids. As you mentioned, the kids that are harder to place are often kids who have uh, their older sibling groups, certainly, but but older kids who've experienced more trauma and often have, have bounced around more. So anyway, yeah. What are your thoughts as to the why? Yeah. Um, when we asked folks kind of to kind of explain, um, you know, their preferences or their openness, what's interesting is trans folks were probably the most likely to sort of talk about why they were open versus like why they couldn't do something. So when we talk to folks about why they're interested or willing to adopt certain kinds of kids, we actually find that, for example, male same-sex couples are most likely to talk about, as you said, not wanting to load the child with so many challenges. So two dads, transracially adopted. And then if we throw in, you know, additional challenges, physical, physical challenges, cognitive challenges, maybe, you know, they're also a child who is LGBT, that it just seems like too much, too much for them, too much for the child. Mm -hmm. And trans folks were much more likely to focus on the characteristics of the children that made them vulnerable, that made them more likely to be placed in the the foster care system, that made them less likely to find a permanent home. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a child who themselves is LGBT or a teenager or part of a sibling group, all the things that might make them less likely to be adopted and to say, you know, how could I not open my family or open my heart to this child when, you know, I myself have experienced challenges or barriers even to get to this point of adopting. And I would say LGBTQ folks in general often talk about how their own experiences of navigating discrimination in the world and facing barriers and trying to become parents has really sensitized them to 
perhaps be more open than uh, other types of individuals and couples. They they feel like how could they discriminate against a particular child when they themselves have endured that type of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was going to be what my my theory was, and 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 I think trans folks probably face the most, and therefore perhaps are have internalized that to make them more empathetic or more. Uh, that would be my non-professional <laughs> and you're the professional. So we'll leave yeah. it at that. Hey guys, as you can tell, I am really enjoying this information and this interview. And I hope you are too. We are very excited to offer you even more expert-based content, just like today's podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. You can go to a shortened link bit.ly slash jbf support to find five free online courses on the creatingafamily.org's online parent training center. These courses are brought to you by the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. You can find them at bit.ly B-I-T dot L-Y slash jbf support. Do you see, you've already mentioned one of that. My question is, yes, it is now legal, but but we know that there is still some residual prejudice against all forms of LGBTQ plus parents uh, when wanting to adopt or foster. So I thought it would be interesting to break out the different types of adoption or fostering and, and, and mention any type of residual issues that they faced or hardships that they face in, in, in adopting. You've mentioned one already, which I think would apply probably to all types of adoption. And that is that in some place, some states, it is still okay for, there's a religious exemption that if an agency who is placing has a religious opposition to gay parents, then they can they can they can discriminate. So we've already mentioned that one. So let's start with talking about foster care. Do you see any residual prejudices against LGBTQ plus parents in either fostering or adopting from foster care? Yeah, I think you know the research shows us that this there certainly is, but it, of course it's more pronounced in certain states, certain areas. We find that there's sort of sort of strong kind of regional differences. So if you're trying to adopt, say, maybe in the on the East Coast, New England, you know, you might find less opposition, less discrimination compared to certain parts of the South, for example, the southern regions of the United States. So it tends to kind of correlate pretty well with other types of both legislation and just general attitudes about LGBTQ folks. We see kind of big differences by region as well as kind of a political affiliation, the dominant, you know, what who won what state, you know, whether it's a so-called red state or blue state, that sort of is, is a key determinant, I think, of, of what folks face. And, you know, there are great agencies, and then there are agencies that kind of routinely will come across my radar as agencies that folks have had trouble with. Mm-hmm. Okay. How about domestic infant adoption? I would assume that your what your statement about agencies and regions is mm-hmm. is that does that follow with couples wanting to or individuals singles wanting to adopt a domestic infant? Does and then if you think of course about the additional component of expectant parents, right? That mm-hmm. you're going to potentially find more expectant parents who are potentially open to placing a child with an LGBTQ person or couple in certain regions, in certain areas of the country, as compared to 
others. So of course, those attitudes that kind of blanket both the agency and the personnel, as well as the folks that live in that region. So, you know, you might find just more, you know, expectant or birth parents who are open to placing their child with um, LGBTQ folks in certain areas. Have you seen, we have, and I, I don't know, this is anecdotal, so I'm. you are the researcher. So we, when we talk with male same-sex couples, they tell us that they're finding almost just, and I, I can't say it's, I have not tried to figure out whether this would be universal in all regions, but that a, a really great acceptance of from expected parents, almost a preference as how they mm-hmm. feel that they are being placed quicker. Is that supported by what you see in the research? So it's very, that's something that has come up a lot in the last 17 years that I've been kind of researching this and, you know, talking to so many folks who are adopting as well as adoption agencies. And it is certainly true that there are a number of expectant moms who really like the idea of placing their child with two men, Mm -hmm. that there is no kind of symbolic or actual, you know, woman in the picture that could seem or be a kind of a mother. Yeah. A mother figure, or there's, there's no sort of symbolic competition and there's less maybe concern about having to carve out a role with that family. You know, this could just be anticipatory anxiety or, or, mm-hmm. you know, it could be a real thing, but, and likewise, I will say, and I know, you know, we'll probably get into this more later when we talk about open adoption, but, you know, two men are often very open to kind of whatever role that birth mother might play in their role. They have a pretty broad idea about what contact might look like. Mm -hmm. They maybe have fewer kind of restrictions on the idea of what kind of relationship they would like. Now, I think from talking to agencies, the order in which it tends to go is, you know, heterosexual couples are placed quickest and there's maybe the biggest pool of expectant parents who are open to a straight couple and then two dads and then two moms and singles are, are somewhere in there too, either before or after the two moms. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting. It is. And that's, that is exactly what we've heard. Yeah. And again, it's, it's anecdotal on our part, but yeah, that's fascinating to me. All right, now let's move to international adoption. 10 years ago, we could safely say that international adoption was really not an option unless you were willing to be, to not acknowledge your uh, sexual orientation. And plenty of people adopted and just didn't. And then certain foreign countries made you have to make a specific. It was not a era of omission. You had to specifically lie, which weeded out even more. What's the status now? Now, international adoptions are, are declining, but nonetheless, they are still an option. What's the horizon look like right now in international adoption as far as LGBTQ adoptions, parents? Yeah, it's so hard to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening because everything is so vague. Like if you go on the internet and you're trying to figure out if this is an option for you, it's really unclear because as you said in the past, so many LGBTQ folks adopted as quote unquote single parents, right? That's how the home studies were written. And then, right. And then, you know, that really, those doors, most of those doors really closed. My understanding is that now there's a few countries that are open to 
openly LGBTQ folks. Mm -hmm. I want to say Columbia is one of them, Mm -hmm. and there are maybe one or two others. But it's really not, if I was guiding some folks, you know, towards looking at their family building options, I probably would not guide them towards that area because it is very challenging to navigate. There are very few options and there are so many restrictions, even if you are trying to, you know, work with a country that does, that is open. So Uh there's often other restrictions in place, of course, that we see with international adoption in general, in terms Mm -hmm. of income requirements, health requirements, and so on. So international adoption, you know, has really changed over the last 10 to 20 years, and it's gotten a lot more complicated. One of the best resources, maybe the only resource that I know of that does this, is at our website, creatingafamily.org. We have adoption comparison charts for the top, well, the United States as well, but also for the top placing countries to the United States. And we will, in that, in the information included there, you will see whether or not they are open to LGBTQ+. Uh, we include that information. So that is a, and we also include in the comparison charts, any other restrictions, as you mentioned, there's how much it's going to cost, what your income would have to be, things like that are included there. So it's a good uh, one-stop shop to understanding what your options are. And you would get that at creatingafamily.org. Again, hover over the word adoption, drop down menu appears and click on adoption comparison charts. Did you know that most people find out about podcasts and specific podcasts through their friends? And we want you to be the friend who recommends the Creating a Family podcast. Uh, You probably run in circles with people online or in person, other uh, adoptive or foster or kinship families. Let them know about our podcast. It would help us and it would help them. Thanks. All right. And another one I wanted to, another another topic I want to talk about, about residual prejudice is embryo donation. It is sometimes called embryo adoption. It actually isn't a form of adoption, but since it is a form of non-genetic parenting, and it's often spoken of as embryo adoption. So I wanted to talk about that one as well. What are your, what do, what do you see as far, and this may be outside of your area of expertise, but what it do is. you see? <laughs> I, I, it's not, yeah. I will, okay, I will, uh, then I will address it because I, I do know and I want to make certain. Oh, we, good. We well, include, well, I will let you be the expert here because this is not <laughs> something that I study. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, that, oh, wow, a turn of tables. This is going to go straight yes. to my head, Abby. <laughs> the issue with embryo donation is where you're going to find your embryos. There is not one universal source. It is a great form of family building, but how you find your embryos can be complicated for LGBTQ+, because your two major options, and there we have, again, a lot of information on this at our website, creatingafamily.org, hover over adoption, click on adoption topics, and go to embryo donation. There are a number of ways to find the two find embryos that the embryos become available because they have been created through IVF. The intended parents have more than their, they they have usually completed their ideal family size and they have leftover embryos. And if if they are willing to donate, they will. There are two main ways that you can find these embryos. One is through the clinic where the embryos were created and oftentimes where they are stored. 
The complication there is that most clinics require that to enter their embryo donation program, you have to already be a patient. So you might be able, it, it, it could complicate things for two women who don't have infertility issues or for two men who it's a social infertility in the sense that they don't have a uterus, but Nonetheless, it, it could be complicated. It's worth trying for going to the, to the clinic to try to find out if they would be open. However, the other way, quite frankly, probably numbers-wise, it's either equal or more, is to find embryos through agencies that their primary business is, is, donate, is embryo donation, often called embryo adoption. And the two main ones have a restriction against LGBTQ. In fairness, I, I don't know if it's actually a restriction, but they I know from talking with members of our community who have gone through them, have gone, tried to go through them, they are not accepted. And they're not accepted because they say that their parents who the intended parents, the, the, the creators of the embryos, do not choose LGBTQ plus parents. So in essence, whether it's the agency intending it, refusing or whether it's the intended parents or the creators of the embryos, nonetheless, it is not, it's not an easy option. It's still worth exploring. And, and again, we have a lot of resources that can help you navigate that, but it is not, it's not a super easy way. Across the board, I find that topic a real interesting one, which hence why not, not the, and also we, get a lot of questions about it. So we have a lot of resources mm-hmm. on it. Am I correct in assuming that that transgendered folks have a harder time with any form of adoption because of misunderstandings or just, I don't know, in general, have you found that transgender face greater hardships and greater struggles when trying to adopt? Yeah, trans adults generally report more discrimination from adoption agencies. So both with respect to kind of gender expression, their own gender, you know, gender identity, you know, they they report more kind of visible and, and maybe less visible signs that, you know, social workers are uncomfortable with them or that mm-hmm. home studies are written in such a way that they're kind of negatively disposed towards them. Uh-huh. There's still so many agency personnel that I think are not super trans competent. And so they, they don't even necessarily recognize when they're being, you know, transphobic or they're kind of demonstrating certain beliefs that they might have, such as, you know, the belief that trans people are, you know, just less fit to be parents, mm-hmm. that they have mental health issues, that they will turn their child trans or gay. And a lot of these kinds of beliefs echo what we used to see, you know, 30, even 20 years ago, when we're talking about agency personnel and ideas about, say, you know, gay men parenting Mm -hmm. children, you know, the Mm -hmm. idea that all all unfounded, but the idea that gay men are pedophiles, the idea that gay men, you know, who who have children, you know, will quote unquote, turn their child gay, Mm -hmm. whatever that means. So, you know, we see these kinds of latent beliefs that are again, unfounded, but really grounded in, you know, these cultural attitudes and generally ignorance, which is one of the reasons why training of agency personnel is so incredibly important to help folks identify these kinds of biases and hopefully educate them in such a way that they can move beyond them. Yeah, that makes that makes really good sense to me. We know that most 
especially domestic infant, but also some foster care adoptions are open now. Does open adoption look different in LGBTQ plus families? It does in some ways. So, you know, I have studied so many families who've been in open adoptions now for, you know, 13 to 15 years. And I will say that all of them, so these are families headed by heterosexual couples, female couples, male couples, all of them experience tremendous change over time. So there's kind of no one line or kind of trajectory that is really kind of predictable in in open adoption. But there are certain differences that we see, as I mentioned, you know, gay men tend to be kind of more open to a very wide range of types of relationships with birth moms. They're actually often, they say that they actually hope that the birth mom will be involved, you know, again, because there's no mom in the parental unit. So especially if they have daughters, they will often say that they really hope that the birth mom will will and can be a resource. Interestingly, the same does not hold true for two mom families. So there isn't this parallel tendency for them to kind of espouse a hope for you know, the idea that birth fathers will necessarily be involved, but that kind of speaks to the general invisibility of birth fathers, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I think there are these differences, but I will say that there are so many relationships, so many open adoption relationships that I've seen where, you know, there, there really is a mutuality and and a trust between the birth families and the adoptive parents. And I think part of that has to do with the the fact that LGBTQ folks are just generally more open to more expansive ideas around kinship. You know, they kind of think about family in maybe a broader way than um, folks who've been raised, you know, in in heterosexual parent families and they are in heterosexual parent families. That is interesting. Yeah, that kind of, that's a good segue into my next question, which is, do LGBTQ plus parents parent? in ways that are recognizably different than cisgender heterosexual parents? Yeah. Um, so, you know, for so many years, people were so focused on, you know, are there differences, right? Like, are they less good? Are they, you know, than heterosexual parents? And, you know, all the data shows that in terms of parenting quality, there's no sort of serious differences. But in terms of the nuances of how they there are some interesting differences that have emerged. And one is this interesting tendency to kind of divide up unpaid labor. So childcare and parenting responsibilities more equally, right? In a two mom or two dad family, there aren't these kind of clear gender roles, these gendered expectations about who does what, which allows them maybe to divide up labor more equally. And that can have, of course, effects on kids, you know, in terms of their own gender ideologies, their own kind of beliefs around behaviors and activities and how those correlate with gender or don't. And LGBT parents also tend to be more, I would say, tolerant and even affirming of kind of gender creativity. So, you know, straying away from traditional gender binaries in terms of play and activities and dress and toys. So less likely to have beliefs like, you know, that's a boy's toy or that's a girl's activity or you can't wear a dress because you're a boy. Um, So there's maybe greater engagement with the fluidity around gender. Mm -hmm. And I I would refer people to Susan Goldenbach's book, Modern Families, as well as honestly, we've interviewed her a number of times on creating a family. So you can just go through our archive or just search for uh, Golombok and and G-O-L-O-M-B-O-K. And she's done some fascinating research in that area, which I 
I just could continue to read forever. Leading into then how you alleged, not alleged, you said at the beginning that people thought that in the past that two gay dads were going to be uh, either pedophiles or, or turn the kid gay or whatever. So how are the children in LGBTQ plus families faring now that we've now we have good research for many years? Yeah. So, you know, there's so many studies and they're so consistent in terms of their overall findings, which, you know, all the big things like, you know, sort of mental health and adjustment and social functioning and school functioning, you know, most studies show that there really are very, very few differences between kids who are raised by LGBT parents and kids who are raised by cis heterosexual parents. There are some differences and they often have a lot to do with the fact that their families may be more stigmatized. So for example, they may be more likely to be teased in, um, according to some of my newer research in certain regions, so less progressive areas and, or maybe more rural areas, again, reflecting these differences, maybe in attitudes, which makes them more vulnerable. And, you know, they may be also, these kids may be more open to kind of more tolerant of differences in other kids. So more open to kind of a broader spectrum of, you know, potential friends, which is arguably very positive. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And they may be more open to gender and sexuality exploration themselves, because again, they don't have this idea that say being gay is is a bad thing, which again is arguably really healthy that kids Mm -hmm. can hit puberty and early, you know, adolescence and and young adulthood and feel free to figure out who they are in general, whether that has to do with their sexuality, their gender, their religion, exploring their status as adoptees, whatever. Yeah, that makes good sense to me. And just logically speaking, you would be less hesitant to explore because you don't think you, you realize you won't have the condemnation or the disapproval of your parents and that exactly. you will be accepted. Right. Children's House International is a relatively new partner. They are a Hague accredited international adoption agency, and they're currently placing kids from 14 countries and they place kids with families throughout the U.S. They also provide consulting for international surrogacy. Thanks, Children's House International. All right. So Abby, you have uh, your, I'm going to, I'm moving into one of the things I love about at the beginning, I said you were, uh, had written over 130 peer reviewed articles in this area. This is like a candy store for someone like me. <laughs> the, uh, I went to, so your, your website is abbygoldberg.com, but let me pause here. Cause you're getting ready to, when this show airs, you will uh, have a new website. So go ahead and tell us the name of the new website so that people can get you, find you both places. So it's Teach All Families, and it's a website that's specifically designed for both families and also for teachers who want to be more inclusive and, you know, affirming of LGBT parent families. Okay, so at abbygoldberg.com will continue to remain, correct? Oh, yeah, that's more my kind of personal research. Um, So the teachallfamilies.com is really filled with teaching tools and resources for making schools more inclusive of LGBT parent families. So there's tons of resources there. Um, And then it's great for families because they can go there and look at what's available. There's printable PDFs and they can actually bring that to their children's school and say, you know, 
here's some ideas, for example, for making this preschool classroom, as an example, more inclusive of families are like ours. Okay, excellent. Well, at the abbygoldberg.com website, you list your, probably not all of them, but many of your peer-reviewed articles. So I spent the most wonderful 30, 40 minutes reading through just titles and clicking on some. So if you will indulge me, I want to have you just give us a synopsis of, I'm limited myself to just two. But I wanted to include more. But so so for guys listening, go to her website and and just look at the titles and you will just find them. If you are a research geek like me, you will find them absolutely fascinating. But one is lesbian, gay and heterosexual adoptive parents experience with pediatricians. Okay, so that begs the question. What are lesbian, gay, and heterosexual adoptive parents' experiences with pediatricians, and how does that differ from cisgender heterosexual parents? Yeah, we did the study because there just is so little research on kind of how adoptive families interface with the healthcare environment. I'm really interested, as it's probably obvious, in families and systems, families and their broader context, whether that's the legal system or school system, healthcare system. So I was really interested in understanding more about, you know, how how do people find pediatricians and how do adoptive families experience them? What do they experience as affirming and what kinds of practices do they find alienating and how often do they switch pediatricians because they're not getting what they need? So we we found that more than that more than three quarters of them did talk to their pediatricians about adoption. So they did feel like it was important for their pediatricians to know that their child was adopted. It's interesting though that under a quarter felt like that wasn't something that they wanted them That's, to know. That is more interesting to me, actually. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, and we we sort of were interested in that. And it's clear that the folks that didn't share that, it, it seems to be a function of two things. One is that they'd had really negative experiences sharing that information because they felt like pediatricians were not adoption competent and made all kinds of assumptions about their family and or just was kind of awful about it. And it didn't really aid them, they felt. Another was these were kind of new, new pediatricians. Maybe they hadn't kind of gotten around to it. And then a third reason was that they really channeled all their healthcare needs into other specialty services and and uh, healthcare professionals. So they had a pediatrician, but they also had a whole host of other folks that they were working with whom they kind of designated as their kind of adoption people. So they just sort of didn't want to get involved, I guess, with their pediatrician. And again, these were typically people who didn't spend a lot of time at the pediatrician. So it was really like a, you know, one once a year wellness visit and that was yeah. it. But they were also seeing other professionals for other things like neurological or mental health and that sort of thing. So So did the LGBTQ plus parents have a different experience or did you not compare them to cisgender heterosexual? Was that not part of the study? We did. We did look at them. There were very few differences in terms of whether they talked to their pediatricians and whether they felt like their pediatricians were affirming. But many of them did, did talk about how their jobs were harder in some ways, because they were looking for a pediatrician who was adoption competent and also often culturally competent and also often LGBT, if not competent, then at least affirming. So they were pretty 
you know, they were balancing quite a lot in terms yeah. of searching for kind of the ideal pediatrician. And many of them felt like, you know, we, we made certain sacrifices. It was more important for us, for example, to have, you know, as an example, a Latinx pediatrician who right. shared the same background or race as our child versus, you know, being really gay friendly, like they're fine, but they're, they're nothing special. So that was, mm-hmm. that was sort of interesting. And we did also find that those folks who adopted internationally felt the most positively. So they felt like their pediatricians understood adoption more so than other folks. And that may be, I think, a function of the fact that there are more kind of these adoption medicine specialists who kind Mm -hmm. of have been historically focused on international adoptees. That's the very, that's international adoption clinics. You're right. And many, uh, many people at least initially start off and oftentimes even continue a telehealth type of relationship with them. That's fascinating. Okay. So the, the one I really want to ask you about is this, this is a title of some of your research. This is a little older parental naming practices in same sex adoptive families. What a great thing to research. I have no idea what you found. So I am so curious. I didn't let myself read it ahead of time. So I would be. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you find? You know, I'm just, as a researcher, I'm just driven by a ton of curiosity. I can tell. And so <laughs> I was just very interested. There really hadn't been any systematic research looking at, you know, how do parents decide what their children will call them, right? Like, you know, mama, mommy, daddy, daddy, papa, Ima, you know, there's, there's a variety of different options. So I was interested in, you know, what kinds of names same-sex couples chose and kind of what the process of choosing those names looked like. So we found that, you know, gay dads most often chose daddy as their parent name. That was like the one that everyone wanted. And more than half of the two dad families chose the combination of daddy and papa. That's so funny because most of the families I know, that's exactly what our pop or papa or something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So it's just, so yeah. So, and then lesbian moms most often use mom or mommy and more than half use the combination of mama and mommy. So these are all just different combinations. These combinations are examples of what we call parallel names, which, you know, like mama and mommy, like sort of the, the parallel sure. naming practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were some exceptions, like some folks use things like mama and momsy, or they use their first names, or one was mama and one was their first name. And, and then, you know, uh, you know, they were generally drawing on kind of the dominant names that were available, like in our broader culture. And, you know, one could say that by using these sort of familiar names, you know, they were actively encouraging other people to see them as real parents, right? They were, Mm -hmm. you know, drawing on what people were familiar with and what society generally understands is like, oh, that's that's a name that a kid calls a parent. Mm -hmm. But some of them did not feel that these were perfect terms and they struggled with kind of finding the right word that resonated with them, right? That were maybe weren't so gendered. So a few of them came up with other terms that they felt like were a little bit more gender neutral or gender inclusive and not so binary. It makes, yeah. I could see that too. Although I would have to say from a, the other thing is that it's, it's also, it's, I mean, you're giving a signal to the broader world that I am in a parenting, I am a parent because of the, but the, of the, the, the nomenclature that you use, the name that you've chosen, mm-hmm. but you're also making it easy for your child because in your child, when they're going to say, I'm going to call my mom, 
everybody knows that they're calling their mom, you know, so right. I'm calling mom. Well, that's true. And I will say too, that most of them were flexible because we, we asked them about this before they had children. And then right after, and most of them were really flexible around, you know, my, my kid might come up with something totally different, which is mm-hmm. totally true. And I can say that as a parent <laughs> that, you know, some like somehow I ended up as a mama, which I didn't expect it, expect, but it's just <laughs> what my kid has stuck with. And I mean, sometimes kids just come up with something different and that is just rings true. I think no matter what form your family takes, that kids will just stick with something or sometimes kids can't pronounce something and they come up with some derivative of that. So I think all the parents that we interviewed were very open to the possibility that this could actually be different. And and actually some of them did. Some of them, for example, adopted older children and those children, you know, didn't, for example, right away, call them mommy and mama, right? Like they came up with something that maybe felt more comfortable for them, Mm -hmm. given that they were 12, 13, 14 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense too. Our children will have a way of of winning out in this area. Yeah. And my last question, and I feel like we I always want to raise this when talking about this topic, and that is how are LGBTQ plus youth doing in foster care? And is there a need for parents to adopt? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, we know LGBTQ youth are overrepresented in foster care, which makes this a particularly important topic. So, for example, the Williams Institute, they did a study and they estimated that one in five youth in foster care in L.A. were LGBT. So one, that's, you know, one in five, 20 percent, which is twice the number of LGBT youth that were you know, that live outside of foster care. And they also found that LGBT youth were more likely to have a history of being, you know, in, in, you know, lots of foster care placements, and they were more likely to be living in a group home, which of Mm -hmm. course, you know, inhibits the likelihood that they're going to be able to find a permanent family. So this is, it's a huge issue. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, LGBT youth are more likely to land in foster care, you know, partly because of the kind of rejection that they might face in their families of origin. And I think it really highlights the need for LGBTQ parents, right? For foster parents and adoptive parents that, you know, LGBT parents are often really open to adopting LGBT teens. I mentioned again about trans parents being like the most open to adopting an LGBT teenager. And that's important, right? That we have Mm -hmm. people who can deeply empathize with these kids and whose, whose homes are open to them. And I, I, I do think that these kids, these kids are struggling, right? And any additional resources that we can offer them, Mm -hmm. I think is really, really important. And we Mm -hmm. do have this untapped resource of parents who are often very open to to at least fostering, if not adopting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And 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 even if you are not, if don't feel that you are ready to adopt, consider fostering, because yeah. uh, we need LGBTQ foster families for these youth in particular. Yes. Thank you so much, Abby Goldberg, for being with us today to talk about LGBTQ plus parenting, specifically with adoption. I really appreciate it. And to everybody else. Check us next week. I look forward to seeing you then. 